I'm holding my hand right now um, a blast from the past. This is one of my sixth form yearbooks from Queen Mary's College in Basingstoke. Now, I don't know what it was like for you at school, but for me, unofficially at least, there were all kinds of subclasses or different categories of people. There were the athletes, there was the drama club, there were the kind of musicians, the band people, the choir people, the future farmers of Hampshire, a very small group, that one. Um, uh, There were the goths, the loners, the in-crowd, the out-crowd, and you kind of got categorized by what class or what group you were in. For instance, if you were good at sport, Oh, and that was great, because the athletes were right there on top. Everyone looked up to them. Uh, they were the ones that everyone aspired to be with or hang out with. I know it's different in other places. In some places, it's the musicians. It's the band that rules the school. Some places, the chess club rules. That wasn't the kind of school or college I went to. In our school, it was definitely those who were good at sport. And that presented something of a problem for me, because while I was fanatical about sport... I wasn't naturally gifted at it. So, as I flick through the pages of my yearbook, there are some people that seem to crop up on virtually every page. My only appearance is somewhere towards the back of a crowd scene on page 79. For all intents and purposes, it's like I didn't even exist. Now, all these years later, all these years later, it's become increasingly clear to me that it wasn't just at school or college that these different subclasses or categories of people existed. It's like all through life, people get designated into different groups or classes. In fact, the unsavory little facts about me, and probably the unsavory little fact about you, is that we all tend to keep these unpublished lists in our minds of the desirables and the undesirables, the in-crowd and the out-crowd, the so-called acceptables and the unacceptables. To some extent, in some shape, size or form, I think probably we all do that. I mean, imagine the chaos right now if all of a sudden we could all read one another's minds. Because the truth is, for every negative thought you have had, even this morning, about some of the people around you, believe it or not, there are people around you, I don't even try to guess who they are or what they've been thinking, but there are people around you who have probably had equally negative thoughts about you. And they've been just as irrelevant as the thoughts you have had about the people around you. I don't know, maybe you were worshipping earlier and for people from the outside looking in, it looked like you were lost in wonder, awe and praise and your hands were raised and you were singing passionately. At the corner of your eye, you see someone coming and think, what is she wearing? But you're there and you're worshipping and maybe there's a kid just down the row from you making a bit of a rumpus and you think, can't their parents control them? And you think, gaffer tape it was invented for a reason bring it on a Sunday and you're worshipping and your hands are raised and uh, uh, and you see someone coming in late what kind of time is this I mean what kind of a chaotic lifestyle do they live not to show up on time and it's just ridiculous it's like even though we're a church there is something in me and there is something in you that quickly categorizes people and draws conclusions about them. Now, you'd hope 
it wouldn't be like that in the church. But it is. And it always has been. You see, as we're going to discover today, James, and we're reading the book of James over this term together, James addresses this exact same situation in his church 2,000 years ago. So if you've got a Bible with you, maybe you could turn with me to the book of James. We're going to be camped out in chapter 2 this morning. And faced with this secret kind of class system that I think probably all of us have in our minds to some extent. Here's what James says about it. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, my sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Let's just pause there for a moment. I want you to notice who it is that James is addressing here. James here is speaking to believers. He's speaking to followers of Jesus. He's addressing believers in the one who emptied himself. He's addressing followers of the one who all his life found himself in the wrong crowd, who was very much on the outside, who very much knew what it was to be excluded. Even though he was God in the flesh, he left the incomprehensible magnificence of heaven and he emptied himself and humbled himself to extend a revolutionary kind of love to all people, especially those people who find themselves right there on the margins of society. And James says to those of us who follow him, those of us today who put our faith in him, we must not show favoritism. Now, this word favoritism comes from a Greek word which literally means receiving the face. It's receiving someone at face value. It's accepting somebody based on how they look or how they appear rather than what lies under the surface. It's assessing someone by their outward external appearance rather than doing what God himself does and looking beneath the surface at the state of a person's heart. And it's favoritism that leads us to keep those secret, unpublished lists in our minds that put people in different categories, different classes, and define who we accept and who we don't accept. Those who will perhaps help us get ahead and those who really won't help us at all, maybe be a drag on us and really we don't invest any time in them. I don't know. I mean, some of us have a preference for being around people who appear a certain way. We live, don't we, in a society that still judges people very much based on outward appearance. That's one reason why cosmetic surgery is such a growing industry today. Because people know that if they don't appear a certain way, they won't be accepted a certain way. Other of us may be drawn to those who dress in a particular way. Maybe you're turned off by the person who has all those body piercings or the executive in his Armani suit or the girl with the tattoos or the person who wears jeans with rips in them as they're preaching. I mean, disastrous stuff. Some of us prefer to be around the rich instead of the poor and vice versa. A whole bunch of people who deeply resent people with money and gives them a wide berth. Others of us, if truth be told, prefer to hang out with the highly educated. And we look down our noses at those who haven't invested years and years and years at the taxpayer's expense in the whole area of academic advancement. 
And of course, moving swiftly on, the unpleasant little secret that most of us will never admit is preference for people of certain ethnicity or skin colour. And so every little secret about me and so every little secret about you is probably all of us keep secret, unpublished lists in our minds of the desirables and the undesirables, the in-crowd and the out-crowd, the acceptables and the unacceptables. And James here in verse 1 is saying that that way of thinking, that mindset is completely inconsistent with faith in the one who came to break down barriers of race, who came to to smash through barriers of class, who, who came to destroy barriers of gender, the one who came to express a revolutionary kind of love. And so those attitudes, they've got to be confronted. They really do have to be exposed. They've got to be dealt with, and they've got to be changed. I mean, think about it. As believers... We have been totally accepted by God in spite of our sin, in spite of all of our background, in spite of all of our broken promises, in spite of a whole load of junk that that we would be absolutely ashamed and embarrassed if other people here today found out about. And James says, now, don't turn round and reject other people based on things that you wouldn't want God to to reject you over. I mean, what if God accepted us the way we accept one another? What if God only accepted people with a certain IQ? What if God only accepted people with a certain amount of money? What if God didn't accept some people because they had too much money? Or what if God only accepted Jews and no one else? I mean, he could have done that. James is saying... Don't do it. Don't place people in categories that God doesn't recognize. It's like you have a higher standard for who you will and won't accept than God does. And then James moves on to give us a simple test, a simple assessment, to just try and help us evaluate our own hearts in all of this. He sends two very different people into a church meeting. One's rich and one's poor, one's affluent, and one lives right on the margins of society. And he wants to see how we will treat these different people. Now, just for a bit of background before we get into this, you're probably aware we gather in life groups in one another's homes every week. These are gatherings where we get together, where we share a meal, we worship, encourage one another, pray with one another, seek to apply God's word to our lives. And what I want to do is just kind of slightly modify this story, make it a little more contemporary to our situation, and I want you to pretend you are the main character in this story. I want you to imagine that you are hosting a life group at your house, and it's been a hard month for you. Uh, You've just got laid off from your job, you're a well-paid, high-tech employee, an electronics giant. That's maybe going to be too much of a stretch of your imagination but just go with me on this. That, that was the job you had. And now you've been laid off from that job, you don't know what you're going to do. You, you, you don't know if your skills and your training are still marketable. And it's been absolutely years since you've had to go and search for a job. It's like your CV doesn't even exist anymore. You're not sure how you're going to go about doing it. The severance package you've been given will last a few months, but not beyond that. Anyway, despite all of that, you agree 
to host the life group. The night comes and all the usual suspects show up. There's the polite banter as people begin to arrive. After a while, the food's served, and so everyone starts making their way through to the dining room. As they all start to sit down around the table, you being a good host, you go to the front door just to make sure no one else is coming. And as you look outside, you see two more court cars pulling up. One of them is a brand new, shimmering Aston Martin DB9. The other is a clapped out camper van complete with vinyl wood panels that are faded and half missing. Picture the two vehicles. And two couples get out of these vehicles and start to make their way to your front door. Now as the Aston Martin couple gets closer, you spot her Prada shoes and her Louis Vuitton bag. It looks like he's wearing a Paul Smith shirt right out of the pages of GQ magazine. And suddenly, you realize who it is. You, you've been reading the Birmingham Mail and Post. You recognize who they are from the pages of, kind of the, the, the people of the city that they kind of publish every now and again. There they are. It's the MD of a multinational electronics firm. And you've heard rumors his wife is a partner in a huge city center law firm. You've been dying to get an interview with someone at this guy's company. Someone who will just help you get your foot in the door. And so you start thinking to yourself, what a night this could turn out to be. Arriving at the door at the same time as this couple is the couple who have crawled out of the camper van. You see they have a couple of young kids with them who look like they haven't bathed in the last month. And to be honest, it smells like the parents had trouble finding their way to a shower anytime soon or recently. And you greet both couples at the door. And you introduce yourself and let them know how delighted you are to have them there for the first time at the life group. And you take their coats and you start kind of ushering them through towards the dining room. And as you do that, you realize to your horror, there are only three seats at the table. Of course, one for you and two more. And so it's decision time. Which couple are you going to sit at the dining room table and which couple is going to sit over there on the floor somewhere? What are you going to do? Well, you know for sure, you're not going to miss the opportunity for future career advancement. And so, without a split second of thought, you start to show your future boss to his seat of honour right at the head of the table. But you stop in your tracks because you realise that while you're kind of showing them into the house, you realize that people in the life group, are, as they often do in life group, even as food is being served, already their discussion is turning towards the preaching last Sunday. And someone has started, even as the food is being served, they started reading from the pages of Scripture. The passage that was preached, I mean, it happens in every life group here, a spiritual lot. They start reading from James chapter 2, verse 2. So you stand there as they read these words. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say here's a good seat for you but say to the poor man you just stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts listen Every time we draw a conclusion about someone, we're judging them. We've looked at the evidence, as shallow as it is, and we've labelled that person. I don't know, guilty of having too much money or not enough money. Guilty of being too fat 
or too thin, guilty of being too obsessed with their appearance or not taking enough care over how they look or they're useful in helping me get ahead but they haven't really got a whole lot to offer me. It's like we are judging one another on things that God doesn't even recognize. And James is saying, what in the world do you think you're doing? It's like you have a higher standard than God has. Do you listen to those words? It's like they cut right into your heart. You've got four people, just two good seats. So what are you going to do? One couple. Obviously, if you're second class every day, wherever they go, it's like it's become a way of life for them. The other couple, they're used to eating in the best restaurants and sitting in the best seats at sporting events and sitting in first class wherever they travel. So what are you going to do now? How are you going to handle this situation? I'll let you kind of work it out in your minds and see how you're going to finish that story. And to help you with your decision making, I want us to look at these next few verses in James chapter 2 to see how God feels about people who are on the margins of society. People who, perhaps in our culture, do get left on the outside. Who, almost every day of their lives, get neglected and forgotten and ignored. Verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers, my dear sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith, and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. James is saying, really, you have valued the wrong thing. Remember, he's talking to believers here. He's addressing church people. He's saying, even in the church, so often we value the wrong thing. We're far too concerned about how much money, or what car, or what clothes, or what qualifications, or what possessions, or what job, or what accent, or what postcode people have. And James is saying, all of that is irrelevant. It's unimportant. It is not an issue. It doesn't make anyone any better, and it doesn't make anyone any worse. We we shouldn't look up to, or look down on people because of any of that stuff. What really matters, James says, is whether a person is rich in faith. The wealth of true value is to be rich in faith. It's the people who are rich in faith that we should honour. Then look at verses 6 and 7. But if you have insulted the poor, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now, just to explain, in case your mind's going down a certain route right now, evidently, back then, in that church context, some of the followers of Jesus were kind of sucking up to some of the very same people who were actively engaged in oppressing and exploiting the poor for their own personal economic advantage. It's like they were heaping honour on the very people who are exploiting the poor for their own gain. Now, although I am pretty confident that none of that is going on in this church, the truth is God hates injustice. And wherever we see evidence of exploitation or oppression, 
we must not have anything to do with it. The specific life situation that James is addressing here probably, hopefully, doesn't relate to us. But the principles we find here certainly do apply to us. We must take a stand as believers in Jesus. We must take a stand for righteousness and justice and we must take a stand against exploitation and oppression. Now look, I guess for most of us here, the issue that James is talking about here, particularly in terms of rich and poor people, I guess the issue for us isn't so much that one. Although for some of us it is. Maybe as you look at some of the cars in the car park, it it gives you a real problem. Maybe you see cars that cost more than your annual income and you inwardly resent it, causing you to seethe inside. You've got an attitude problem when it comes to people who have more money than you do. For other people, it's the other extreme altogether. Maybe you think poor people are just plain lazy. You see someone who's poor and think it's basically their own fault. They just didn't have what it takes to make it. Some of you don't like fat people. Some of you don't like skinny people. Some of you don't like people who are married. Some of you don't like people who are single. Some of you have an attitude against divorced people or single mums. Others of you resent it whenever you see a happy family. Some of you don't like people who are a different race to you. You wouldn't admit it, but you don't. Some of you don't like gay people. Some of you don't like stay-at-home mums. Others of you don't like mums who go out to work. And a whole lot of you don't like people who you perceive to have bad taste. As soon as you see someone who maybe isn't wearing the right clothes, there's something in you that says, I could just never really connect with them. And all this time, imagine what God's doing. Imagine what God's thinking. What? They've got bad taste? Maybe I should have a bad taste category too. I mean, from heaven's perspective, what do you think bad taste might be? I I think probably from the perspective of heaven, all of us have got bad taste. Listen, you won't come to this church for very long before you start bumping into people who represent a category that you just kind of get an attitude about. And God's going, get this straight. You were dying in your sin and going to hell until I forgave you. And even now, you keep messing up. But I'm gracious. I keep forgiving you and forgiving you and forgiving you. Then you come in here on a Sunday and you start making all these distinctions. I'm like, what was it again? Fashion? Uh, and besides that, you're, you're drawing conclusions about people you don't even know. I mean, you don't know their circumstances. You don't know the story that they've got to tell. It's like you've made a judgment call on almost no evidence at all. What if I treated you that way? What if that's the way salvation worked? What if the only way to be saved involved having a certain amount of money or ethnicity or IQ or skill level. Look, God has gone to incredible lengths to make us one 
Through the cross, he's created unity in his body, the church. It's an incredible thing. The church is the the one place on earth that male and female, young and old, black and white, rich and poor, can genuinely be family together. It's like the church is supposed to demonstrate to the world the unique power of the gospel to break down all those divides that human beings just erect. But it's in me, and I think it's probably in you as well, to split us up, to undermine this unity. Sometimes it leaks out in what we say, very often behind people's backs. Sometimes it it leaks out in what we do. So let me ask you, when it comes to this whole issue of favoritism and classifying different people, putting them in different groups or classes, when it comes to the moment that I described at the life group where, where you're the host and you've got that decision to make, how are you doing? How are we doing as a church on this? I guess if we're being honest, this challenges all of us in some way. So fortunately then, James goes on to offer us a solution. So we read on verse 8, this is what he says. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, now what's the royal law found in Scripture? Well, he tells us, this is what it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep that law, love your neighbor as yourself. James would say, you are doing right. You know where that law comes from? It comes from Leviticus. It's part of the Old Testament law. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you remember Jesus, there was this occasion when he was asked by some of the religious leaders, what's the greatest commandment? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's the greatest commandment. That's number one. But if you've got room for two laws, number two is this. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's pretty simple, isn't it? If you want to gauge the health of a church, you look at how they're getting along with God and how they get along with one another. They love God and they love one another. Jesus says, if you just follow those two simple commands, then everything else will just kind of work out fine. If you'll just see yourself instead of the prejudice. If you'll just see yourself instead of the preference. If you just see yourself instead of single, married, rich, poor, cool, not so cool, black, white, or whatever it is, if you just see yourself and treat people the way you'd want to be treated, it will eliminate this problem. It's like you've got to start seeing people through a different set of lenses, through a different set of glasses. You've got to train yourself to begin thinking differently. You've got to start applying what you believe. So when you run into that person or that category of person that you generally judge or steer away from, it's a simple solution. When you bump into that person, I mean, you see them from a distance, you're, you're trying to work out who to invite over for lunch or whatever, and, and you find that thing in you that starts to make a judgment call, you simply love that person as you'd want them to love you. I'm telling you, live that way and it will cure this problem in the church in an instant. Instead of seeing black or white or rich or poor or married or single or have a you split everyone up, 
if instead of seeing that, you just see yourself and then love that person as you would want to be loved, James says, that will eliminate this problem in the church. And then, just in case, I haven't quite got it yet, look what James says next. Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But, if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm being honest, I don't think I've ever confessed this as a sin. I don't think I've ever prayed to God, God, would you forgive me for having a bad attitude towards that certain category or group of people? James goes, you need to know, this isn't one of those, hey, let's just tighten this up a little bit kind of categories. This isn't one of those, I mean, you're you really oughtn't do that because it's a bit naughty. I mean, if you've got the time or the inclination, just steer clear of this. He says, no, no, no. Let's get this straight. This is sin. Now, I think there's a tendency in most of us to think that of all the sins we could commit in life, favoritism must be pretty low down on God's league table. I mean, it's not like adultery. It's not like murder. Not according to James. Verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you don't commit adultery but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Implication, and if you show favoritism, if you show partiality, you have become a lawbreaker too. So... For the sake of the health of the church, let's start calling it what it is. Showing favoritism is a sin. It's law-breaking. And we desperately, desperately, desperately need to deal with it. But as if he hasn't already said enough, he goes on. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. That law being, love your neighbor as yourself, that he's just quoted in the previous verse. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. In other words, quit judging, or else you are going to be judged. Remember, one day you are going to stand before God alongside all the people who are rich in faith. And if you haven't learned to value what God values, and if you haven't learned to place value on the people that God places value on, one day you will be judged. And all the times you have judged others for being too short, too fat, too rich, too uneducated, you you are going to have to give an account to God for all of that. Listen, whereas most of our lives... If we're being honest, we've given an account of other people's lives. On that final day, we're going to have to give an account for our own life. So James would offer us a very practical piece of advice. He's trying to help us here. He'd say, live as one who is going to be judged. Don't live your life as a judge. And then notice... 
how he closes out this passage. Final phrase in verse 13. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I wonder if you'd just say that with me. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And because that was a little limp, because we don't normally do that kind of thing here, let's do it one more time. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That means whenever you're walking down the corridor, or whenever you're walking down the street, or whenever you're walking across the classroom, or whenever you're walking down the aisle in the supermarket, wherever you are, when you bump into other believers, because that's the true context of this passage, although I'm sure the same principle applies to our attitude towards unbelievers as well. Whenever you run into other people, particularly believers, and there's something inside you that goes down the whole judgment route, you had better cut it off straight away. You'd better start going down the mercy route instead. Because when you stand before God, you're going to go, give me mercy. Boy, do I believe in mercy. You wouldn't believe how important mercy is to me right now. I mean, I've lived under this kind of category of mercy all my life. That's how we're going to feel when we stand before God. So in this life, let's allow mercy to triumph over judgment. Let's show mercy to the people that we would tend to judge. Let's love as we would like to be loved. Listen, honour those you have a tendency to dishonour. Because that's what your Heavenly Father did when he extended grace and mercy and salvation to you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, the unacceptable, those who deserve judgment. Thankfully, God allows mercy to triumph over judgment. So let me ask you a few questions. I hope you're trying to apply all of this, and then we're done. First question. Who is it that you don't like? Now, don't shout it out. Don't you pointing at the person. Just <laughs> That's what started happening on the other side. I thought I'd nip this one in the bud just before it kind of gets out of hand. Secretly in your mind. Don't look at them. Don't write it down in your notes. It's in your mind. Who is it you don't like? Or if you think that's maybe just a bit strong, who is it that occasionally you turn your nose up to? Who's the person or who's the category of person that the moment you see them, you start to judge? Who is that? Who is that person? What is that category? I want to ask you another question. Would you like to take a giant step forward in your faith right now, would you be willing to say, I've sinned? Would you be willing to recognize it for what God calls it? Would you be willing to ask God to forgive you today? Then the final question, wouldn't it be great when we ran into those people or heard about them, instead of turning the other way, thinking negative thoughts. Wouldn't it be great if we decided we were going to start demonstrating love to them? We'll we'll show love to them as we would like to be loved. We'll honour them as we would like to be honoured. We'll accept them as we'd want to be accepted. We'll, We'll simply embrace the law that Jesus says is the second most important law. And we'll say, you know what? I'm going to love those are difficult to love. I'm going to love my neighbour as myself. Wouldn't that be revolutionary? That's the way that God has designed for this church to be. God's dream 
has always been, from before the beginning of time, God's dream has always been for his church to have no class distinctions. God's dream has always been for his church to be a warm, welcoming place for all people, a safe place for people to come along and feel loved and accepted regardless of race or money or clothes, even athleticism. Why do you get this? This isn't the job just of the host team. It isn't just for people who wear those lanyards around their necks on a Sunday. It's not just for them. This isn't just the job of the staff or those doing frontier project for the year and then they can forget about it. It isn't just a job for the eldership team. No, this is your job. This isn't an optional extra. This is how all of us, absolutely all of us, are called to live. I want to invite you to stand and we're going to pray.